Hello, and thank you for listening to True Crime Cam. I was gonna say this week's episode is gonna be kind of chill and a collection of r slash let's not meet stories, but all of these stories have to do with murder or attempted murder. So I guess not chill this week. This first story is titled, I was almost a victim of a killer, and it was posted a day ago. Over four years ago, I went to work at a warehouse in the small town that I'm from. I decided to leave after my health started to get worse physically, and I was diagnosed with panic disorder and severe anxiety after the situation that I'm about to tell you. This changed the way I developed friendships after that job, that's for certain. So, I started this job on April Fool's Day of 2018, which was odd to me, and I had no kind of high expectation of the job. All I wanted was to do my job, get paid, and go home, as I had two children at home and many things that I could work on there. The job wasn't hard, and it made me pretty good money for all duties considered, so I really couldn't complain. I worked a second shift for about five months, and I went to day shift. While working on second shift, I kept to myself mostly until one day. I met someone from one of the lines after we struck up a conversation about gaming. For the sake of anonymity, we'll name him J.F. Well, J.F. was a pretty good guy and we had a lot of things in common. I went home that night and he popped up as a suggested friend on Facebook. Again, another oddity. So I decided to add him. When I did, we started talking more at work until he suggested that we should hang out. So we did hang out, pretty frequently. We were friends for a month at this point and one day he decided that he was going to introduce me to his partner. She seemed decent at first super nice, didn't seem to be a judgmental type, so I was cool with her. From then on, I would hang out with him when my kids were spending time with my mother. One time, we were talking at a restaurant and he started to vent to me. Quote, dude, she's such a bitch sometimes. The other day, I forgot to take the trash out and she threatened to stab me if I didn't. I've never been in a relationship where someone's threatened me, but she's got good intentions, dude. When he said that to me, I was concerned, but of course... We had only been friends for a month or so. I thought maybe he was being morbid jokingly, so I chuckled at him. He gave me a pretty serious look and said, I'm not joking. She really did. That concerned me. Fast forward about eight months. They're still together and we all hang out pretty regularly, forgetting the things he told me then. One day we were all talking and he seemed a little off that day, so I asked him what was wrong in front of her. He flashed a smirk and said, Nothing, dude. I'm just a little tired. He didn't have his eyes on me, though. He had them on her when I asked that. When we went to work the next day, I asked him again, quote, do you promise to keep this between us? Of course, I agreed. He said that he was breaking up with her and she went a little crazy. He said that she grabbed her gun and pointed it at him and said, if I can't have you, then no one will. He said that he diffused the situation and is trying to look for a way out. Not really knowing what to say, I just said, you'll figure it out, man. If you need somewhere to go, then you can come stay with me until you get her out of the house. Fast forward to another year. He finally decided to leave her. When he did, she flipped out again. This time, he told her over text. She said that she was going to find him and kill him, and he was actually out of work that day with a vacation day. He sent me a text that said, hey, let me know if she comes over to work looking for me. That struck me as odd because I had no idea of the situation that was unfolding. She actually did come to our job and she asked me where he was and I said, I have no idea. 
I thought he was with you and you guys went out of town or something. All she did was roll up her window and drive off. I called him and told him that she came by and he called the police about it. They had found her up the road with a loaded gun in the car. Two months later, he decided to talk to her again, and when he did, he had something to tell me. When he called me, he asked if I had seen her around, and I hadn't. He said, I would take some vacation days if I were you. Dumbfounded, I asked him why. He said to me, quote, because she's out of jail and her cousins are in town, trying to find the people she has personal vendettas with. You're one of them. At that point, I was terrified. I grabbed my kids and went out of town, took two weeks off of work, come to find out that next day, her and her cousins went to the next town over and shot three people in an apartment and killed them. I got the news about it the day after it happened. The reason why he knew they were coming after me is because they made a Facebook messenger group that he was included in and sent a list of names. Everyone regarded it as spam and decided to disregard the messages, but he knew what it was. Three of the names on that list were the people that they shot. The fourth name on that list was mine. After they found the evidence and he decided to go public about the group and screenshots that he had, they were all charged with first-degree murder. From then on, I was very careful about who I would stick my neck out for, because even though he knew the context of that list and her intentions, he decided not to inform anyone else on it. Needless to say, we aren't friends anymore, and I dodged a bullet. Literally. Sorry for the long post. I felt like it needed context. Stay safe, y'all. Speaking of crazy exes, this next post is titled, Legitimately Crazy Ex. This may well be the worst way to tell your parents you're gay. Do not recommend. My sophomore year of high school, I was on the cast and costume crew for our fall play. One of my castmates slash crewmates was a really, really cute guy. His name was Mark. He always wore skinny jeans, and I learned from a mutual friend he was bisexual. So I started flirting with him, looking for opportunities to hang out, sending him memes, everything a closeted nerd could do. After three months of flirting, hanging out, and growing gradually more affectionate, I asked him out on the last day of our play. He said yes. The issue? My mother is a very conservative Christian, and although she was tolerant of gay people, I knew she'd never allow me to have a boyfriend while I lived with her. Side note, I had four boyfriends while I lived with her. So we had to hide our relationship, which early on wasn't too bad. We'd go to the movies or his house and just hang out. But everything started going downhill the first time we had sex. He started getting really demanding about hanging out, and by demanding about hanging out, I mean he was never not horny and frustrated. I was cool with it at first because, well, sex. But after a while, I was getting pissed about it. Working a relationship around my mom was difficult, and my generally asocial nature was not at all enjoying having to leave the house so often. I tried to talk to Mark about it, and he seemed understanding for like a week. Then he started getting nasty. He'd avoid me at school, only text me to insult me, and act insanely jealous of my friends. Eventually, I had enough and dumped him in July after nine months, over text, while I was in Florida. Look, I was 16. Fuck you. Anyway, he lost it. He blew up my phone daily for a week. Then he started acting normal, like we were friends. That lasted another month, and we got back to school, my junior year, his senior. Unfortunately, while we were dating, we had tried to coordinate our schedules, so now we had four out of seven classes with each other. At first, he seemed okay. Then he started staring at me. 
then he started texting me again, sad messages. I figured he was done being a dick and started being nice to him again. Big ass mistake. He started getting attached again. He would try to integrate himself every time I went out with my friends. He would beg me to take him back. I would say no and explain again why we couldn't be together. Around October, he started getting bad. Like, 1am texts about swallowing a whole bottle of melatonin bad. In hindsight, I should have gone to the authorities, but I was terrified that doing so would lead my mom to finding out, so I tried to handle it myself. Bad idea. He got worse. He threatened to kill himself irregularly and tried to turn my friends against me. The worst day thus far came when we were building our homecoming float for Drama Club. I was hanging out and casually flirt-bantering with two of my male friends, Isaac and Caleb, who were both straight. Mark saw this, stood up from where he'd been painting, and walked out in a hurry. A few minutes later, a freshman girl walked in, asking me where Mark was going. He said I'd know. I found out later he'd driven himself to the ER to get counseling. I was happy, thinking he'd get some help, but I had no damn clue how obsessed he was. I came home from rehearsal one day to find his car parked up my street, and Mark walking towards it from my house. My mom was on the porch, waving bye to him. She thought we were just friends and loved him. Apparently he'd, quote, been in the neighborhood and thought to drop by. Just for some background, I am the eldest of seven boys. My youngest brothers were two years old and six months in the womb during this. My mom raised us, primarily by herself. Dad's a dirtbag, stepdad was deployed throughout this ordeal. She is an honest six feet tall, about half that wide, and can easily sling me across her shoulders. I'm 6'3 and 180 pounds. She is also the best shot with a pistol I've ever seen, by far. Not someone Mark, who's 5'4 and 120 pounds soaking wet, would want to tangle with, even while she was heavily pregnant. I told her we did hang out, just not as much. She accepted this, and we went about our days. For a week, everything was okay. And then, I came home from rehearsal. Mark's car was parked up the street again, and he was sitting on our porch with my mother, who had my baby brother on her lap. She saw me get out of the car and gave me a come-hither crook of the finger. Slowly, I walked up to the porch. It turned out Mark had told her everything. Everything. Our whole relationship. But with me as the abuser and himself as the victim. She started to lay into me, then dismissed Mark, who went back to his car snickering. After she was done ranting, I calmly told her my side of the story. Fortunately, she believed me, but she was still pissed, so I was grounded, which pales in comparison to what happened that night. Our house is old and crappy. The windows can easily be jiggered open from the outside, even when they're locked. Mark knew this, since I'd use it to my advantage many times when sneaking out. And mom's room, where she and my two-year-old brother sleep, is right across the hall from mine, facing the backyard. Mine faces the street. That night, I woke up around 2 a.m. because I was cold. After I got my glasses on, I saw why. My window was open. I whipped around, searching for whoever did it. My bedroom door was open, too. As I got up, I heard the sound of my mom's bedroom door quietly closing. I raced as quietly as possible to the door, and I heard something that stopped my heart. A metallic click. Like a gun being cocked. I flew across the hall and threw my mom's door open. The lights were on. Mark was crouched in the corner, a cleaver in hand. My brother was sound asleep. And my mom? Mom was calmly sitting up in bed, 
glasses on, Harry Potter book in her lap, 10-millimeter pistol in her hands, pointed directly at Mark, who was shaking and sobbing. She told him to shut up before he woke the baby, and directed me to call the cops so she could keep an eye on him. Mark was taken into custody, but Mom declined to press charges. We couldn't afford it. On the condition that Mark move out to Arizona with his dad, instead of staying in Missouri with his mom. Which he did, and from then on I hardly saw him. Unless he was Snapchatting my friends begging to talk about me. Standard shit, you know. Mark, for your safety, let's not meet. Okay, this next story is called... My crazy, psychotic father killed his own mother. I grew up living with my mother and sister, fairly normal childhood living in a small town in the UK. I never knew my dad. All I knew from what my mother told me was that he was a bad man. I first met him when I was around 10 years old. It was all confusing. Don't really remember everything, but I think they had started seeing each other again. They saw each other on and off for a few months, and then he would disappear. This carried on throughout my teens up until I was around 15 years old. He started to get quite aggressive, and she refused to see him anymore. In parentheses, my mother never told me when I was younger, but he used to beat her to an inch of her life when she was pregnant with me. One afternoon, he came to the door. When my mom wouldn't let him in, he tried to break the door down, shouting that he was going to burn the house down and kill us all. He didn't know I was there to witness all of this. I saw him at the front of the house with his hands to his neck, mimicking slitting our throat. The day he got arrested, my mom got a restraining order against him. That was the last time we had heard from him until three years ago. I got a postcard through the post with nothing but a name on it and a phone number. I instantly recognized his messy handwriting. I thought it was odd after about five years of no contact getting a postcard from him. Obviously, I ignored it. In July 2013, my mother found the police at our door. They came with some news that was shocking, but also not at all. I'll start from the beginning here. My grandmother went to visit my father. She is often traveling around, and it wasn't unusual to not hear from her for some weeks. But when she hadn't been heard from in three months, the family began to worry. The last person who had seen or heard from her was my dad. This all happened around the same time I received the postcard. Her going missing had coincided with the discovery of a body, around a half a mile from where she was seen last. A relative identified her from a digital reconstruction of her skull, which was a striking resemblance to her. My dad was the number one suspect at this point. He was arrested on suspicion of her murder and later charged. The police took statements, told us they had found evidence and they knew it was him. He denied it all. We were following the case, which was when the grisly details started coming out. They had an argument, and he ended up killing, dismembering, and then burying her body in a shallow grave. They said she may have been alive when he dismembered her. Strangely enough, his family were on his side and said he was innocent. He had later come clean about the whole thing. He said he thought she was a reptile in human skin, and he wanted to cut her open to see the reptile. He was being held in a secure psychiatric facility, but is currently in prison. He has been assessed by multiple psychiatrists who say he has paranoid schizophrenia. He was sentenced to nine years in prison for manslaughter, not murder. I find it absolutely appalling. He has served three years already, so will be out in six years. Someone who has killed his own mother in cold blood and has made death threats to his own daughter 
will be out of prison so soon and it absolutely terrifies me what could possibly happen if he ever finds me or my family. I'm confused about the postcard he sent me around the time he killed her. I don't understand how the justice system could fuck up so much and let a potentially dangerous person out of prison so soon. So yeah, that's my fucked up story about my own father. So they added an edit at the top of this post. Thanks to those who responded. I should probably also mention that where he is being held is in a different country to where I live, although it is easy to cross the border. He received an extended sentence, so when he is set free, he is not allowed to travel out of the country for a further nine years. This doesn't mean that he wouldn't be able to if he tried, though. Takes about four hours on the train. This story is 100% true. If you don't believe me, you can Google, and it's either Corstaphine or Corstapine Hill Murder. And I found an article by the BBC, and this article is titled Corstapine Hill Trial, James Dunleavy Guilty of Killing His Own Mother. Okay, actually, that article was from 2014. Let me read this article from only a few years ago, November of 2019. And this comes from the Daily Record in the UK by Jane Hamilton. It's titled, Killer Who Beheaded Own Mother Sent Back to Carstairs Amid Fears He Could Strike Again. James Dunleavy, who is considered an untreatable psychopath, was being monitored in an Edinburgh halfway house after serving just six years of his jail term. Dunleavy, 45, was found guilty of culpable homicide on the grounds of diminished responsibility and was sent to the state hospital. The monster was released from the high-security facility after psychiatric reports said he was fit to serve his sentence in a conventional prison. Sources say he was then freed from prison back into the community after serving only six years of his nine-year sentence. Dunleavy, who was born in Dublin, was being monitored in an Edinburgh halfway house, whose location we will not be revealing after his release. But sources at the hostel say he was starting to show signs of a mental breakdown and is considered so dangerous, there were fears he would offend again. The source said, quote, He's been at the hostel for some time and has been allowed to freely mingle with the public who have no idea who he is or what he's done. He was starting to act very weirdly, very hostile, very aggressive, and it was worrying some of the staff. He was considered untreatable at the state hospital, so to put this guy back on the streets was a crazy decision. The people who make those decisions are playing Russian roulette with the public. The source added, He was readmitted to the hospital about a month ago as an emergency admission. The police took him back. He has been showing signs of hostility and threatening violence, and the staff at the hostel decided they couldn't take any chances with their own safety, the other residents, and the public. At his trial in 2014, the high court heard chilling evidence that 66-year-old Philomena, I hope I pronounced that right, could still have been alive when the killer began to hack off her limbs. Philomena from Marino, Dublin, had been visiting her son before the fatal attack in 2013. He battered and strangled her before he chopped off her head and legs, then buried her remains in woods in Corsterfine Hill. A cyclist came across the grave and police appealed for help to identify the dismembered remains. Dunleavy, said to be obsessed with religion and a Muslim convert, was arrested shortly after his mother was identified by police. Jurors heard evidence that he thought his mother was a reptile and wanted to look inside her body to see if she was. And that's basically the whole article. It kind of ends with prison officials and the hospital officials saying that they're not allowed to comment on the case, so they can't tell you whether or not he's actually there. 
And that was the most recent article I could find updating about James Dunleavy's whereabouts and the case. So he may or may not be still in the hospital or prison. He could potentially be walking free. This next story is titled, I was on someone's kill list. After high school many years ago, I was in a bad place. My guardian had kicked me out after graduation. She didn't help me find a place to stay, so I lived in my car for a couple months. I met some heavy metal dudes at work one day. I had seen them around town and all my other friends knew who they were. Everyone loved them. We became friends over a couple of months and they offered for me to move in with them. I agreed. Looking back now, I wish I had just stayed in my car. My two main roommates were brothers, named Andrew and Seth. They were in a band. They also believed in the occult and anything of that sort. I never really believed in that stuff, but I'm not one to tell someone what they should believe. They had let me live with them rent-free for several months, so who was I to complain? Being the only female in the house full of young men, I was always looking over my shoulder. You never know who you can trust. Turns out I was right to worry. Over time, their friends started to stay with us for longer periods of time, sometimes weeks. Their friends were another group of brothers that they had gone to school with. There were five brothers in total, but only two stayed with us consistently. The younger brother, Mark, was very polite. He cleaned up after himself and always helped with the household chores. The other brother, Adam, had a laundry list of mental problems. He had apparently done some bad drugs back in the day, and it had developed into what seemed like psychosis of the religious sort. He had done some time in prison for assaulting a woman with a Bible. He would often look you in the eyes and tell you he could see how you would die. Once, he told me that I was possessed by a demon, and I needed my soul cleansed. Everyone in the house knew he had these problems, but he was their friend. They helped him through the hard times and gave him a place to stay. Otherwise, he would be on the streets. I was always on guard around him after the things he told me. No one else seemed to be as concerned as I was. They should have been. One day, I was sleeping and my phone rang. It was my boss. He asked if I could come into work an hour early. It was only 12 p.m. I was broke and had nothing better to do, so I said yes. I got up and began getting ready to leave. I walked out into the living room to see Mark and Andrew sitting on the couch, while Adam sat on the floor by the TV. He was watching scripture videos on YouTube. Some real end-of-days shit. That was fairly common, so I went about my business. I said goodbye and left for work. My shift at work was almost complete when the phone rang. My boss answered, handed the phone to me, and said, For you. I was just a cashier, so I assumed it was a friend that couldn't reach me on my phone. I answered the phone and heard a man's voice that I didn't recognize. Hi, this is Detective Williams. Something happened at your apartment today and we need you to come to the station to talk about it. I left work immediately. I had assumed one of the brothers had been arrested for drug dealing or something. I was very wrong. I got to the station and was buzzed in. An officer escorted me to a small, cold room with a camera. He gave me a bottle of water and left me by myself for about 30 minutes. My mind was racing, thinking about what could have happened. He came back in and informed me that Adam had stabbed and killed Andrew at around 1 p.m. I was shocked. I had just left the house an hour before it happened and everything seemed fine. The detective informed me there hadn't been a fight and it seemed to have happened out of nowhere. I gave my statement to the police and left with nowhere to go, still in shock and confused out of my mind. Our apartment was a crime scene. 
so I went to another friend's house to watch the news report, since the police wouldn't give me any information on the case. Over the next couple of days, the information began to be released. Adam hadn't just stabbed Andrew once, not twice, but he had stabbed him over and over and nearly decapitated him. After the murder, he ran down the road, still holding the murder weapon. He called 911 and informed them what he had done. I watched the news report in horror. We had known he was unstable, but this? He had fully confessed to the brutal murder and provided police with his notebooks. He had apparently been planning to murder all of his brothers, my roommates, and me. He thought we were possessed by demons, and this was the only way to free us. Luckily, none of his other intended victims were there that day. Mark unfortunately witnessed the murder, but he luckily escaped. If I hadn't gotten that call from my boss, I wouldn't be alive today. So, to the man who brutally murdered my friend and wanted to murder me, let's never meet again. Okay, this next story is titled, My friend claimed she was a witch, tried to kill her parents. These events happened over several months in 2016, when me and my sister, then 16 and 14, first moved into our most recent apartment complex with our mother. We now call it the apartment complex from hell because there were so many incidents like this. Admittedly, we were still in the hoverboard craze then and would ride them around. This is how we met Savannah. She was our age and lived in our building. She asked to hang out, and we were happy to hopefully make new friends, so we said yes. We hung out outside the complex at a little park area. It got dark and we started making up ghost stories. Turns out she liked creepy paranormal stuff like we did. Note, I did not actually believe in this stuff and still don't. Every time I reference the paranormal, it is hyperbole. As we were walking home, the light in one of the apartment hallways flickered, and I joked and said it was a spirit trying to communicate with us. Savannah made up a flash-once-for-yes-twice-for-no system to communicate with the quote-unquote spirit, and we messed around a bit. We thought it was just harmless fun. The next day, she runs over to us, excited. She informs us that the spirit we had met last night told her its name was Kieran and that it meant light, so it all made perfect sense now. We asked her how she knew, and she said she went back later that night alone to talk to it. This was the first time it occurred to us that she might have really believed in this stuff. Our aunt had given us a Ouija board as a joke the year before, and we thought Savannah might like it. Savannah lit up and said she wanted to try to talk to Kieran. So we huddled in the hallway connecting the apartments and put our hands on the board. We kept getting random letters that didn't make any sense, but soon Savannah's questions were directed to Kieran. We felt her moving the planchette and called her out, but she got mad and said she'd prove it. She took her hand off the planchette and it no longer moved. She just huffed and insisted it wasn't her. Over the next few weeks, we did mostly normal stuff with her, but she kept talking about the ghosts and Ouija boards until we broke down and played it again. This time, we were introduced to a new ghost, Evan. We knew it was Savannah moving the planchette, but we were curious about the story she was making, so we let her follow through. Evan was a ghost, or demon rather, about our age, who wanted to be free from a greater demon controlling him. That greater demon's name, Kieran. Savannah's parents called her inside, and conveniently, Evan had to go, too. He told us he'd protect us against Kieran especially Savannah. Savannah commented on how cute that was for him to offer. A few days go by normally, but then Savannah's back to tell us she has a boyfriend. We're happy for her until she tells us his name is Evan. 
We're wondering what the hell she's talking about. And she explains that, while sleeping over at another friend's house, something had tugged off her shorts while she slept. She'd woken up and heard Evan's voice. Then he'd visit her in her dreams and ask to date, or something like that. She'd said yes. Of course, we know she made up Evan. So we're kind of like, what is wrong with you? And we don't talk about the demon stuff anymore. Now, Savannah was extremely possessive over her friends. When she'd see us with someone else, she'd text us nonstop about why we hadn't invited her. We tried to keep our distance, but she lived on the ground floor and literally watched out her window waiting for us to come outside. She'd latch onto us. We didn't know much about her home life, but she always seemed troubled. She had scars on her wrists and talked about running away from home. Her parents seemed all right, if rather strict and religious. We still hung out with her because we were worried but we started to feel weird about it. Worse, she'd randomly show up holding her hand out, saying Evan was holding her hand. She'd look at random things and laugh when no one was talking because Evan had told her a joke. Once, she made us feel her cheek where it was supposedly warm from Evan kissing her. It was not warm. One day, my sister and I were bored from her talking to Evan on the Ouija board. She was still controlling the whole thing and wanted some fun. I texted my mom to call my phone from a blocked number and play creepy sounds. Looking back, this was one of the dumbest things I did, but at the time, it was just for fun. My mom made the call and I put it on speaker. Savannah is living for it, especially when my mom played a track from a scary movie about a ghost. My mom took it a step further and threw a banana off our third-story balcony for us to see. Savannah said it was a sign that Kieran was winning. We had no idea of the fire this would light in her. We were about to tell her it was a prank, but again, her mom called her inside. She found us again the next day, and I came clean about the prank. She laughed and said there was no way we could have done that. I said no. My mom literally did all of it. Well, Savannah had told her friend about it, who'd told her that yellow objects, like the banana, were a sign of the devil, and seeing them meant the devil was hunting you. This was all she talked about for a while, but since nothing else happened, she gradually forgot. Things went back to normal for a while, until Autumn moved in. Autumn and Savannah connected instantly, because of their history with depression. Autumn was a few years younger than us, but had a hell of a lot more of a past. This included significant time spent in psychiatric facilities, and violence towards her classmates and family. Autumn claimed she or demons talked to her at night, and just like that, the ghost stuff had started again. Savannah felt threatened by Autumn and felt the need to one-up her with the ghost stuff. She told her Evan was her ghost brother that looked out for her. I was like, hold on, you claimed he was your boyfriend. She giggled and said, that's gross, he's my brother. Her story had completely switched. Now she was dating another demon named Jacob, and they were engaged. She even showed us a ring to prove it. The next week or so was literally like a match between them to see who was the darkest and most involved in the spiritual world or whatever. They'd compare scars on their wrists and brag about cutting themselves and doing things like sneaking out in the night. In a move to one-up Autumn, Savannah drew a giant pentagram in the parking lot with chalk. Her parents found out and she backed out and blamed it on Autumn. The next freaking day, people come to repave the parking lot. The pentagram is now buried under it forever, literally. Savannah moved on to saying her friend had found Jacob's body and was going to put his spirit back inside it. Savannah continued to take advice from this friend, who fueled everything she did. Savannah now said the friend was teaching her witchcraft. We mostly avoided her at this point, but she'd ask us to do things like make holy water with her, 
and try and summon her a familiar. From that point on, she insisted she was a fire witch and walked around wearing all black, with Halloween-like makeup on her face. She and Autumn frequently snuck out together, and occasionally we'd see cop cars at her house. My sister and I were avoiding them both, but now we'd get fiery texts from both of them if we hung out with other people, especially our guy friends. Once, they saw us get home and stood in the parking lot pretending to be possessed. Autumn also cut off all her hair and claimed to have tried to kill her teacher. My sister and I knew it was bullshit, or at least we hoped, but Savannah took it so seriously. She'd go around telling neighbors of terrible crimes she committed or wanted to commit. She even told us that when she'd first seen us outside with hoverboards, that she'd wished for them to blow up. One day, we again saw the police come to her door, and the officers had jackets that said they were from the juvenile justice department. Her mom pulled me, my sister, and our mom aside to explain what was going on. Apparently, two years before, they'd discovered Savannah talking with a man online. Her messages to him were hiring him to come literally kill her parents after making threats of killing them a few days before. We were able to confirm the story after pet-sitting for them and finding court papers about it. We'd known she was on probation, but she'd always tell us different stories as to why. Savannah continued to beg us to hang out with her after that, even inviting herself to spend the night. We avoided her at all costs, but she'd follow us everywhere. It kind of died down when Autumn moved out and Savannah moved with her family shortly after. Since then, she's started doing service hours at horse stables and graduated high school. I really hope she's gotten happier and more stable. Autumn messaged my sister a few months ago, asking to call her mom to confirm she was with us. She wasn't. And we later saw her with a 19-year-old dude. She's 14 now. Me and my sister and mom have moved as well. There were too many incidents in those apartments. Our new place is quiet and peaceful. But to Savannah and Autumn, let's never meet again. Okay, I think that's it for this week's episode. I hope you all have a good weekend and make sure to tune in next week for another episode. And of course, I hope you all have a good day, evening, or night. Goodbye.